welcome to The Get Together. It's our show about the nuts and bolts, the meat and potatoes, the nitty gritty, circles and squares. What you got, Kevin? Ooh, triangles and ovals, <laughs> oh. uh, rhombuses and dodecahedrons. Now you're showing off. Of community of building. Of community building. I'm your host, Bailey Richardson. Hi, Bailey. I'm a partner at People & Company. Wow. I'm Kevin Wynn. I'm also a partner at People & Company. Each episode, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. How did they do it? How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to thousands more members? Today, we're talking to Cortland Allen. What's up, Cortland? Yeah, Cortland, the founder of Indie Hackers. It's a primarily online community for independent entrepreneurs. And by independent, I mean these are people who are building businesses that make their money from customers. They're not backed by investors. What started as 150 personal emails Cortland sent to friends and strangers has grown to a community of more than 60,000 entrepreneurs. It's almost like if you imagine a spring being pressed back. The spring is like how many years people had to go without seeing these stories hmm. and wanted and hoped would be there. And then boom, and the hackers came out and suddenly it's like, yes, this is the yes. thing that I wanted. These people come together on Indie Hackers to share valuable stories and insights or tap each other for inspiration and advice. Sometimes they get together in person too. Like last month, there were 55 Indie Hacker meetups all around the world. That's more than one meetup per day. That is more than one per day. I did the math. What if all 55 (laughs) were on one day? Super Indie Hacker Friday, you know? Yeah. Or maybe not. Well, it could have happened that way. It could have. That's one possible approach. Except on the Indie Hacker website. Kevin, (laughs) what stuck out to you about our conversation with Cortland? Ooh, many things stuck out to me. I'll mention two. Woo! Uh, The first was... Cortland's hunch that people want to talk about the thing that isn't being talked about. Oftentimes, I think really extraordinary communities spring from a place of vulnerability. Like what is something that you are going through, whether it's because of your identity or your work or something you're pursuing that, you know, you're thinking about so much that, but it isn't normal, quote unquote, to talk about it. And in this instance, it's the idea of like being an entrepreneur, but really talking about what it takes to make money and how much money you are making. And Cortland, who's he seems to be very iterative, very let's try it and see. It was clear that he got something right from the get go. And I think when you do get something right for a community, when you do send out that signal, when you do host that first event, there's something to say when people are really into it, they're really into it. And you know, and you tap into something very special. Yeah. He's, he described it, which is fun, as a spring yes. that has been held tightly for yeah. too long. Yes, yes. And it gets tighter and tighter, and all of a sudden it was just like... Yeah. <laughs> Force equals negative K times X. Is that it? The spring constant? I Show hope, it hope up I'm again, right. that yeah, mech you know, E degree. Engineers are cool. <laughs> uh, the other thing is just uh, this idea of when I get to run office hours coaching different community leaders, this topic of building a business versus building a community always comes up. You know, you start something special, you have people showing up, and you think, man, it sure would be great if this just scaled up more and I, this could be my full-time job, that would be great. And talking to Cortland, asking for advice for community leaders thinking about this, he just talks about acknowledging trade-offs. It's not easy to, to start a, a giant community. That doesn't happen by magic. It's not easy to start a business. That doesn't happen by magic either. And just to assume that one leads to another isn't always the case. And Cortland just talks about if you tell yourself you want this to be free and reach the most people possible, you should probably acknowledge it's going to be hard to charge a membership fee. And then there are trade-offs to accepting sponsorship, which would allow you to keep certain elements of 
of a community free. So I just really appreciated his practical approach and sort of hands-on experience navigating this question of what it means to start a community and what it means to start a business. Yeah. Before we dive into the interview, I'll also mention one more thing. We first met Cortland at Stripe HQ in San Francisco because we're working with Stripe. Their press imprint is our publisher for the book that we're making, Get Together, which is coming out this August. What is up, Stripe Press team? Yeah. Yeah. And for Cortland, Stripe acquired Indie Hackers about two years ago, which is an interesting story and something we'll talk about in this podcast. Let's get into it. All right, Cortland, before we dive in too much, I just wanted to ask you to very simply, in like one or two sentences, tell us who the Indie Hackers community is and what you guys come together to do. So as simply as you can. Indie Hackers is a community of people, mostly software engineers, who want to make money online by selling the products that they create. And we come together to support each other in doing this. Great. Perfect. That's exactly what we needed. Interview done. (laughs) What are some of the things that you guys do when you come together? Like really quickly, I know you guys have a forum and you have articles. What are some of the things you've built for these folks? A lot of the things that we do center around telling each other stories and seeing what we can learn from those stories. So there is no one right path to entrepreneurship. It looks as different as there are different people on earth. And so I think there's a lot to learn from different people telling even pretty similar stories. So in terms of the products that I built to help people do this, we have a podcast where I interview entrepreneurs, just like you guys doing to me right now. This is yeah. why Cortland's yeah. going to yeah. be so well-spoken on this podcast and make <laughs> us look bad. Go ahead. Look at a very professional <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Busted out the pro equipment for this. We also have text-based interviews that we publish to the website that are pretty similar to the podcast and actually predate the podcast where I'll ask entrepreneurs a standard series of questions. And I think really the learning is in the different ways in which you see people answer these questions. And so I'll ask, how did you come up with your idea? Why did you start this? How did you find your first customers? How much money are you making? You know, what have you learned, et cetera. And we've done probably 400 of these interviews today. Wow. I want to get into that a little bit later in the interview, but before we do get into the nuts and bolts of all of those pieces of what you've built and how they've gone, I just want to get to know you a little bit better as well. So you started this how long ago now? When did you start Indie Hackers within the last two years? Almost three years now. I started it in July, 2016. And what motivated you personally? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your story up until the point of starting this site and what motivated you emotionally, personally to say like you wanted to invest your time in this problem? Paint, Paint the picture. I came to the Bay Area to sort of follow my passion for startups a year after I graduated college. And I was so excited when I first got here because it was everything that I'd ever read about online. It's everything that I had ever watched videos about. Within a few months of being here, started meeting my heroes whose blogs I'd been reading for years. And I thought it was just so cool to be a part of the startup scene. But then I noticed I started getting a little bit jaded. I didn't really jive with the culture of needing permission to build a business. I didn't like the idea Mm -hmm. that everybody, instead of figuring out what kinds of cool things they could create, were more obsessed with how they could get in front of investors and how to pitch investors and how to convince investors to open up their wallets. And I understood the, the necessity of this to some degree, but I didn't think that it was a way that you should have to build a business. I thought there needed to be another way. And so I found myself more attracted to stories of people going sort of an unconventional route, which is pretty crazy because it's the way that business has always been done. You, right. some, you make something available to customers and then you sell it for a price. But in Silicon Valley, that script had sort of been turned on its head. And so I was really inspired by the Jason Freed's of the world. A base camp for all the listeners out there who may not know him. 
Exactly. He was doing a lot of writing at the time, along with his co-founder, David, about how like the Silicon Valley model was a little bit distorted and how you could just literally create something of value, put a price on it, and people would buy it and make a business for yourself that way. And that really appealed to me. But I couldn't find very much sympathy in the Bay Area because mm. I was going through Y Combinator. I was doing all the sort of stereotypical startup, accelerator, investor type stuff. And everybody was enamored of that world. And I found myself feeling a little bit alone in that sense. Can I ask you what year that was? Because you, I think you might have moved here from the East Coast or from further away. And I'm originally from the Bay Area. And my dad and the people I grew up around, exactly like you said, they started businesses bootstrapped first. And then there, this point came where there was so much investment that it was actually creating businesses instead of businesses seeking investments. So what year was this? Like when you were coming here and kind of looking to start your own business, but not seeing space for the one you wanted to make? I moved out here in late 2010. I got into Y Combinator, which is sort of the startup. Yeah, congratulations. That's a big deal. It was. It was such a huge deal. And that was in 2011. And then I was sort of working on my own startups for the next four or five years after that, becoming progressively more disillusioned with the way that things were done. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned your dad bootstrapping a business and his colleagues doing the same because I think this has always happened. Like there have always been people in tech who are bootstrapping their businesses and building them in a more traditional way. They just at some point along the way stopped getting the attention, stopped getting the focus. And when you have entire movies coming out about Facebook getting started and like the path that Mark Zuckerberg took, that starts to become the canonical way to do things. It starts to become the way that seeps into the mindsets of many millions of people of how it's done, how it has to be done. So fast forward a few years years. I've taken a break from the startup scene, but I'm ready to come back. And I want an idea and I know exactly what I don't want to do. I know that I don't want to raise money. I know that I want to build a business that I can charge money for and make money on my own and sort of, for lack of a better term, improve my life, right? I want to be more free. I want the ability to choose the types of things I work on, who I work with, what hours I work, et cetera. And that's kind of the motivation I had for starting another startup. But I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know it would be indie hackers. And so I went online and decided I'm going to start researching. I was like, who else has actually done this? And this is where I ran into this problem of the fact that these stories don't get publicized very often. There's not many places online that you can go to find stories of people building these small indie hackers, as I call them now, but at the time, like nameless, right? Who are these people? They're not startup founders. Some people call them lifestyle business owners. Mm-hmm. They're in tech and they're building scalable products. Like, who are they? There's not even a name for them. How could you possibly mm-hmm. find them? So I just scoured the internet. I spent a lot of time on different forums that are popular in tech and among software engineers, just trying to find these stories, like a little comment here or a questionnaire that somebody mm. left or a blog post there, where somebody would have a story about they bootstrap something to $1,000 a month in revenue, mm. they bootstrap something to $10,000 a month, you know? And I just took as many notes as I could. What were these people working on? Like what was successful for them? What wasn't successful for them? How long did it take them? Because this is the path that I wanted to follow. And I really wanted to see if there is any inspiration out there, any tidbits of advice that I could piece together to help myself as well. About three days into this process of just nonstop research, an idea struck me. It was a very meta idea, which is that... Yeah, it's like an inception idea, this 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 idea, this for a business, <laughs> but keep going. It's great. <laughs> used by it a little bit because I wasn't sleeping very much. And so I was like, am I dreaming? Is this-? <laughs> it was just like, literally, I would go to sleep and just like imagine these internet forums because I was reading for like 12 Oh my hours. gosh. <laughs> wow. But the idea was, hey, there's other people like me doing the same thing. I can tell because I can see them in the comments asking questions the same way that I'm asking questions. And they really want to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. But we're all sort of just trying to piece it together. We're trying to mm-hmm. put the pieces together all over the internet 
there isn't one central place where you can go to find all this information. There's no place that really celebrates these types of stories and it helps people build these types of businesses. Everything is about how to raise more money from investors, how to grow as fast as possible, mm-hmm. et cetera. And that advice is pretty deadly if you're trying to achieve a different goal. And so I said, okay, well, what if I built a site that did that? What if I contacted all these people whose stories I read and got them to share their stories in a more useful and streamlined way and created a centralized resource for other people like me to solve the same problem that I'm trying to solve? So ironically, like my idea for a company was the exact solution to me having the problem of needing to come up with an idea for a company. I want to ask you a question that gets at just simply, why do you think that these stories were not available anywhere. You know, a lot of theories out there, some conspiracy theories about it. (laughs) I have my own opinions. I think it's a direct result of the incentives of a bunch of different interconnected parties. If you think about being an investor, a venture capitalist, you make money when your investments 100x or 500x, right? You make money if you invest in Facebook because they're now worth 5,000 times what they were when you invested in them. And it doesn't matter that much to you if you invest in 100 companies and 99 of them fail. As long as one of them is Facebook, you get all of your money back and more. Where the media comes into this is that essentially, if you're writing any sort of tech blog or entrepreneurship blog, you want stories that are going to get readers. And what gets readers more than household brand recognizable names that are Mm -hmm. affecting millions of people? Like They're always going to write about the Facebooks and the Googles of the world before they write about the small indie hacker businesses. So basically, the people who control the money and who control the attention are both incentivized to tell the stories of these much bigger businesses and not really focus on kind of the little guy who's building a business that might be impressive, that might be helping millions of people, that might be having an impact on their life and the lives of their employees and others. But, you know, they're not as big, so why tell that story? Yeah. Uh, So I think that plays into it as well. I think there's also more of these businesses nowadays than there were in the past. They're pretty hard to track down. Nowadays, I think easier than ever for one person or a small team of people with no funding to build something significant and impactful that can actually be a successful business. And so there's more demand for these stories as well as more people try to follow this path. The other thing that jumps out to me too about indie hackers, which is probably so obvious to you at this point, but striking to me is how talking about revenue is a vulnerable thing. Like you have people on your site saying exactly how much they make per month, including you have done that with indie hackers. And everywhere else you see these numbers that are not revenue, but are how much someone has said I am worth, which is in many ways an imaginary number. And you see that so much. And it's something that people can hide behind. But you're taking away that hiding and people are sharing in a very vulnerable way. And I guess I want to dig into how did you know from the very beginning that you needed to talk about the truth of revenue? And was that hard to convince people to do? Or why did you decide to do that? Like, that seems like such an important piece. It is an important piece. It's kind of embedded into the culture of indie hackers. I'll talk for a second about the first thing you said, which was numbers you see people typically sharing on tech blogs and the tech news is how much money they've raised, right? I've raised my first series A round, my seed round, et cetera. And that's kind of a proxy for how well a company is doing because companies like to be guarded about all their actual numbers, revenue numbers, growth numbers, et cetera. And like psychologically, I get it. Being an entrepreneur is very difficult. You don't get a lot of pats on the back. Quite frankly, you spend a lot of time by yourself working on very hard problems, not sure you're going to succeed. And ultimately, if like a group of intelligent, well-respected people decide to give you a big check and make it public, and that is going to feel great. And you're going to want to share that with people. And it's kind of a a lights a fire under your ass and your team as Mm -hmm. well. So it's exciting. So I understand why people do it. But at the same time, 
it's not really a measure of success, right? It doesn't mean you've created anything useful for anybody yet. It doesn't mean you've created anything of value. And so revenue numbers are really for people who are trying to figure out how things are going more accurate. And what I noticed when I was reading these stories online is the questions people would ask were always trying to dig for the truth, right? People wanted to know, well, how much money are you making? If someone shared a story about their bowling app that they put online and helps bowlers become better at bowling and now they're making a living from that. People want to know what that living looks like. Is it $1,000 a month and you're living in your parents' basement? Is it big enough for you to hire employees? Because that inspires them. And so I think as a result of reading all these stories, it became pretty clear to me early on from day one that if I'm going to do a good job getting people to share these stories, it's non-negotiable that they share their revenue numbers. It's really hard to put these stories into context if you don't know exactly how much money someone's making. And that doesn't mean we need to only interview people who are killing it. Right? We interview people who are making $500 a month from a side project. And like that's, in my mind, as big of a success as people I've interviewed who are making $200 million a year. Mm-hmm. It really depends on your expectations and your goals. And everybody's different. So from the get-go, when I started emailing people and asking, hey, I'm starting this new website. Would you like to appear? Let me interview. And by the way, you've got to share your revenue numbers. A lot of people said no. Uh, <laughs> why would I do that? Pass. But I would say about 10% of people were like, yeah, man, I'm right on board with you. This is what I mm. always dreamed of existing. I would love to be sort of a pioneer interview and uh, let's do this. So I launched the site with about 10 interviews after having emailed 150 people asking if they would do interviews. That gives you sort of an idea of the ratio of people who are okay sharing their revenue numbers. I think today it's much higher. It's more common for people to be transparent. People realize that when you're in tiny business and you share your revenue numbers, generally speaking, there are no consequences. People yeah. are fired and they like what you're talking about. You're not going to get robbed on the street. <laughs> you're not going to get a competitor stealing your lunch. Yeah. So you share your financial information, not like your bank account numbers, but like how much money you have saved, how much money you have in certain accounts, how much money you are currently making in order to give the appropriate context to have like a productive, helpful conversation. Like how do you expect people to help you or be able to like find value in what you're figuring out unless you provide them like the appropriate context and information to solve that problem. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I think the conversations are just not as productive when there's not that base level of transparency. Mm-hmm. And there's also like a bunch of ancillary benefits, which I'm sure we'll get into, but people really like reading stories that have revenue numbers. And if you are a founder working by yourself and things are hard and they're not going that well, but you read a story about someone who's sort of achieved your goal and they put it in very real terms you can understand, like a mm-hmm. dollar amount or a lifestyle change or things they could do before, they can do now that they couldn't do before, like that resonates with you. And it mm-hmm. gives you sort of the motivation to keep going, which is the number one reason why people visit Andy Hackers today, because they Mm. want motivation, they want inspiration, they want to not feel so alone. So take me back to the launch of the site. How did you let interested people know? Who were those first readers? How did you go about kind of sending a signal out about what you were making? Yeah. So I do remember the names of many of my first (laughs) friends. Most of them were strangers. They were people who decided to take a chance on me. And so I spent Mm. a lot of time going back and forth with them to get their stories out. Malcolm Ocean Mm. was a really good one. Chris Chen was a really good one. Tyler Tringas. There's a lot back in the day. Hey guys, thanks for doing what you did. Thank you. Thank you, early allies. Changing lives. Appreciate you. So the story of the early growth was that day one, after I decided that I was going to do this, I emailed, like I said, 150 people. This took probably two weeks of me just emailing people because I handcrafted every single email. I said, hey, I found your comment on this website or I saw your blog post here. I thought it was really great when you said this. I would love to interview about these particular topics. This is what I'm working on. Get back to me. 
Yeah. Something that stands out to me about you saying that is that you also spent the time to find 150 people that you thought could be good kindling to get this thing started, which is not an insignificant amount of work. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that's impressive. There's like really common startup advice called do things that don't scale. And it's very helpful for founders who are just trying to get started with something new. You don't have Mm -hmm. any activation energy. You don't have any clout. You don't have any sort of momentum pushing you along. You're going to have to make up for that by just working really hard. Mm -hmm. Not crazy hard, not for super long, but just the beginning parts of your business. And so for me, I was like, all right, going from like zero people know about the site to 100 people know about the site is not that hard. It's not like I have to be clever. I don't have to be a genius. I don't have to be a marketing expert. I just have to do like the very basic work of emailing 100 people about the site, Mm -hmm. which is drudge work. It's not fun. Takes a long time. But like, you know, anybody can do it. Like you don't need a degree. Personal outreach, man. Exactly. Personal outreach is so underrated. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't do it forever. Like nobody wants to spend like all day, every day sending hundreds of emails. I guess some people do. (laughs) That's not me. It's not not what my team (laughs) wants to do. I got a, probably like 20 people agreed to do an interview, but I decided to launch the site once I had 10 interviews complete. Because by that time it had been about three weeks. And another lesson that was very near and dear to my heart as a startup founder was that I don't want to work on anything that's going to take months. If it takes months, I'm going to lose motivation. I'm going to get distracted by something else that's newer and shinier. So three weeks went by and I was like, okay, it's time to launch this site. Luckily, because of my research earlier, when I was searching for an idea, I knew exactly what channels to go to find people who would like the interviews that I was putting together. And in fact, I tailored all the interviews to basically appeal to people who lived in those channels. Can you give us an example of one of those places and how you did that? So the biggest one by far is called Hacker News. Hacker News is sort of a tech community. There's a- Everyone in San Francisco knows it. Maybe no other city like fully recognizes what it is. It's like yeah. everybody in SF knows what it is and like everybody who's ever thought about moving to SF for tech. Yeah, yes. It's very heavily developer skewed, but it's all sorts of people submitting links to topics in these articles that are sort of related to tech or programming or politics, etc. And like pretty reliably once a month, somebody would make a discussion there saying, hey, what's your small profitable business? And people would reply with all their different comments, which is one of the primary sources that I found early on when I was brainstorming ideas. Also one of the places that I went to research people to interview. And so I figured, okay, I can submit this story here. People have reliably upvoted these previous discussions that had much worse stories than the ones I'm telling on my website. They're missing all sorts of information. It didn't have revenue numbers. It didn't have the full story, et cetera. So I'll be very surprised if they didn't like my stories. So Thursday, August 11th, I submitted my website to Hacker News. I emailed all the people who I'd interviewed previously and even some of the ones who said, oh, I don't want to do an interview, but this is cool. Let them know that I submitted it so that they would help upvote. And they did. So it got to the front page. And from there, the community on Hacker News sort of authentically took it to the top. It stayed at number one for, I think, over 24 hours. Oh, that's uh, a long time. Yeah, it was a lot of traffic, a lot of attention, a lot of comments. <laughs> what do you think kept it up there? Because I think sometimes things that get a lot of attention, that's because of some kind of controversy or discussion people are having. What kept it up at the top? I think the controversy that was sort of built into it was like, this is fresh and new. People love novelty. And at the end of the day, there's a ton of stories on Hacker News about how Dropbox raised their latest round of funding. Mm. There are very few stories about people like them, like people like the readers who are just programmers or software engineers or in many cases, people who aren't software developers but figure out a different way to get something online and make money. And maybe they're side projects, maybe they're small, maybe they're modest. But I think it's almost like if you imagine a spring being pressed back, the spring is like how many years people had to go without seeing these stories Hmm. that wanted and hoped would be there. And then boom, and the hackers came out and suddenly it's like, yes, this is the thing I wanted. Basically just like 
just that like yes mm. finally like i'm rooting for you mm. for these interviews i can't wait to see more my favorite part was i got 25 people who emailed me after that and said hey can you interview me here's my revenue numbers etc so my days of cold emailing people all day every day are over that's amazing it makes me want to transition to also how the articles function today so you have a bunch of things that you do with indie hackers now which we'll touch on a little later you have a podcast that is beloved you're using that amazing equipment right now which is why your voice sounds so good um you have meetups all around the world like i was seeing there's some happening like in Vienna in like two days on your site. Like they're very vibrant and real. You have an awesome sort of Rolodex on the site of all the different companies who are involved in the community. So you can see actually who makes this thing up, but you still do articles. And one twist that you've had is that you very prominently encourage people to write their own or to sort of submit themselves to be interviewed. And I have worked in tech and also worked worked in traditional media. And I felt like this was the type of thing that I would argue for going from tech into traditional media. And everyone's like, no, we, you know, we're so precious about who we interview and like we get to hand choose them. And like the story is not going to be good if we're not kind of packaging it up. And so I love that you do that. But at what point did you start sort of like switching? How quickly did you switch from you doing this manual outreach, as you were saying, to inviting people who really cared to offer to write or offer to be interviewed? And was that an obvious thing? Was there an aha moment? It was immediate. It was okay. So when I launched the site, I put a newsletter subscription form on the homepage because I realized that like, okay, people might be excited about this for a day, but then they're going to leave and they're not Mm going to remember to come back unless I can email them and say, Hey, there's new interviews on the website. And so about a week after I launched, I sent my very first email to about a thousand people and said, Hey, there's five new interviews that I've done in the last week with many of you who saw the site and asked me if I could interview you. They're up, check them out. I'm going to be emailing you every Thursday. So pretty quickly, I was asking people to do more interviews. Even in that newsletter, I would say, hey, by the way, if you have a story, it doesn't matter how much money you make or how little, I would love to interview because I didn't want to like do all of that manual outreach. I think there is some truth to the fact that like you need to package stories a little bit. So I wouldn't just interview people and publish the raw interview. Like I would edit it and I would ask them questions and I would also provide like suggestions for how they could potentially answer these questions. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing mm-hmm. the interviews over Skype or anything. I was doing interviews over email. And I was yep. like, how can I scale this up and do as many interviews as possible at as high of a quality level as possible and as little time as possible? So I would ask a question and I would get back responses and I'd say, oh, these responses aren't quite what I was looking for. They're kind of missing this crucial information, but I don't really want to have to send a bunch of back and forth emails. So I would just change up my question template to have a little bullet point under that question and saying, hey, you might want to cover this and this answer, or hey, make sure you don't leave out these details. And then I would send out the updated template to the next founder and they would do the same thing. You know, they would have to be a little bit better, but worse in some ways. I just kept updating my template. And after about like three months of doing this, my template of like eight or nine questions, each one of them had 10 or so bullet points under it for how to answer. And almost every interview I got back didn't need any follow-up questions. They were all like pretty good and contained like really good information. And so I was able to interview people much faster and move on to working on different parts of the site. This is what happens when an engineer becomes an interviewer. <laughs> Optimize the system. <laughs> Make the machine good. First, I was nervous because I was like, ah, isn't it the hallmark of a good interview to really dive into the specifics of what's unique about that person's story and ask dynamic mm. questions to make it fun and entertaining? But I think it really depends on your audience and why they're listening. Why are they reading? And mm. for me, with the website, people were reading because they wanted to learn. They were really curious about how to do these things themselves. And it actually was very helpful for them to have the exact same set of questions across every interview because then they could compare and they could learn consistently. And so I learned this very early on because I tried to change it up. I tried to get fancy and I got negative feedback. Mm. 
which is music mm. to my ears because it's much easier to have a, a sort of standardized set of questions. So I mm. uh, sort of lucked out and that being the best way. Yeah, that's a really key distinction. I feel like it makes total sense once you describe the audience that in fact, there's probably some desire for pattern recognition and to look for trends that's consistent across types of people instead of me reading some profile in The New Yorker about one really exceptional person or this American life's like weird single person that lives in Ohio that did this crazy thing. You're in fact people are trying to find things and insights that they can be confident might also apply to their life. Exactly. And transfer. It gets back to like the purpose of your community as you, you know, outlined in the first two sentences around like inspiration, motivation, clarity, confidence on how to build a business. And if you were to optimize articles for learning in service of that purpose, like this is sort of the output you get. You get something where someone can really look at many of them to see patterns among like strategies and tactics. It continues the ladder back up to why indie hackers exist. Yeah. And I've always sort of looked at indie hackers as not really having that strong of a voice itself, but rather being a stage for others to sort of project their voices. Indie hackers isn't as a website telling you this is how you need to build your business. And this is the only type of business that matters, et cetera. Indie hackers is more like a comedy club you go to and you hear all these different styles and whichever ones make you laugh, make you laugh. Mm. Whichever stories Mm. that I interview people with that resonate with you are the ones that resonate with you. And I think having too heavy of a hand in how I edit the stories or doing a lot of content where it's just me sort of telling you my opinions about what to do would get boring. It would get old. It wouldn't be a platform in the community that it is today where almost anybody can share their story. You just said almost anybody can share their story. I wanted to ask, do you ever say no to anyone? And how do you decide what gets featured and what doesn't as much as you want to share publicly? Yeah, we do have some guidelines. I mean, if you have no guidelines, (laughs) You might as well be nothing. Like, what is just what is just anarchy? Yeah, who do you say who's not family? Who do you say no to? Um, so we're really like a business site. If you're working on something that doesn't generate any revenue, or your goal is not to make any money, then like Indie Hackers is not the website for you. So, for example, there's an entire community of people who label themselves as makers. They have a lot of overlap with the Indie Hacker community. A lot of Indie Hackers are quote unquote makers. Mm. But the difference is, like, to be a maker, you just have to enjoy making things online. To be an Indie Hacker, you have to have a goal of actually making money from these things that you create. So we turn down people who just want to share a story about something that they made, but there's really no business model behind it, no intention for that. We turn down people who are building businesses that aren't necessarily technology enabled or scalable. So if you are, for example, let's say designing websites for people, and every single time you want to design a new website, you have to find a new client. Like That's kind of a cool business, but it's not that scalable. Ultimately, you're sort of trading your time for money, which is great and works really well. But Any Hackers is really a site fueled by people who are excited to find some sort of freedom. They want to change their lives with their business. They want to get out of, quote unquote, working for the man and start their (laughs) own business where they can have more freedom to spend their time how they want, Mm. wherever they want, on the hours they want. And it's really hard to do that if you're trading your time for uh, for money. So Dang, we know about trading our time for money. Yeah. (laughs) You're inspiring me. Almost every job works. It's the way the most businesses work. But I think what's really special about the internet is that you can code something once. You can put up a website or a podcast episode and the sky's the limit to how many people can hear it or buy it or be influenced by it. So there's really no need to sort of be constrained by that. It's not necessary. And I think what inspires the people the most is stories where people have sort of broken free from that yoke of training hours for dollars and figured mm-hmm. out a way to scale their efforts. 
I got a question about prioritization, one of my favorite topics. But, you know, I was just talking to a, um, I was advising someone who has a community of doctors. Doctors train each other on communication skills. And, you know, we were just discussing about all the things that, like, he can do as a community leader. And I look at what Indie Hackers is up to with, as Bailey's already rattled off, podcast articles, meetups. And from what I understand, your headquarters team is not, uh, let's call it dozens of person operation. How do you think about priorities with regards to like what to invest more time and energy in as like someone who's trying to organize and develop this community? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned like our our HQ size because Indie Hackers is just my brother and I, but we're the only two full time on Indie Hackers. And I think like the size of your team the amount of time you have to spend, really like the resources at your disposal, always play a big role in how you prioritize what you work on. Quite frankly, if you don't have the resources to do something, like you just can't do it. And you need to adjust your plan to account for that. And I see a lot of people starting companies or communities who don't really account for that. They're just like, oh, I'm short on manpower. I guess I'm just going to take twice as long to do this thing. And it's like, no, figure out something that's like twice as small so you can get it done in the right amount of time and then use that to stair step your way to the next level. Which leads me to priorities. How do you know what to do first? I'm a big fan of the stair step approach the climbing wall approach. The idea is that if I put you in front of this wall and I'm just like, hey, jump to the top of the wall and it's too tall, you can't do it, right? It's too ambitious. It's, it's really hard. Whereas if I give you a set of stairs, every step you take affords you enough height to make reaching the next step easier. And then that way you can basically achieve like really lofty, ambitious goals by taking it one step at a time. And that was my plan for Indie Hackers. And it's also what I've seen a lot of people that I've interviewed do to build really significant businesses, even though they started very small. So for me, the order is very important. Like I knew that I wanted Indie Hackers to be a community when I first started it, but I didn't start with a community. I started with a blog. It's like, okay, the first easiest thing that I can do in three weeks is just interview people and get their stories out there and test my hypothesis that people actually like these stories. Because if they don't like these stories and the interest isn't there, then why should I waste months of my life building a community forum and trying to start a podcast and in-person meetup groups? I'm going to be fighting an uphill battle that I can't really win. A blog is a very easy way to test people's excitement for a particular idea and topic. In addition, like I mentioned earlier, like I knew that I needed to consistently reach out to these people if I wanted to build a community because otherwise, if they come only one time and don't come back, like that's not a community. Yeah, they're not. They, they got to keep showing up. Exactly. And so I launched the blog. I made sure to collect emails from the blog. I continually put out new interviews and use that as an excuse to basically re-engage previous subscribers and like kind of measured my churn rates and retention rates to see how excited people really were. I put up some fake landing pages on the website to gauge interest in additional features. Yeah, there's nothing on the forum page. It was just a little email collection thing that said, put your email in here if you'd like to be part of the Indiacris forum. Because I didn't want to build the forum if people weren't excited about it. But they were. And so I said, okay, I'll build it. So I sat down for like, I think it took 10 days to like build this like forum from scratch. And of course, there's nobody in it. So I started having these conversations with myself. So I'd make a little <laughs> conversation and say, hey, you know, how do you put up a landing page on the internet? Or how do you come up with an idea? And mm-hmm. I'd make another fake account and I would answer my own question. And then on my weekly email where I would send out the interviews, I would also send out a link to these forum conversations and say, hey, everybody. I built this new forum, look at these conversations you guys are having with each other. They're pretty cool. Jump in. And every now and then somebody would jump in and start engaging with like me, basically, <laughs> not knowing they were only talking to me. And then mm-hmm. you know, I remember the first time I saw two people talking to each other. And that was magical. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. But it started off really small. And I, the forum now is like 60,000 members strong. There's many hundreds of comments every day. It never would have gotten to that point if it didn't start small. And I never would have been able to start small with the forum if I wasn't able to get the emails. Mm-hmm. I never would have gotten the emails if I didn't start with the blog. 
And so it's kind of a stair step that I'm sort of using to get to another place. And I think if I'd done things in a different order, who's to say if I ever would have made any hackers into a significant community? So you just said you guys have 60,000 people in the forum. Is that sort of the number of total folks that participate in the indie hackers community? Or do you have more than that? And how do you define what a member is? Like, is it someone who creates an account on the website? What does that mean for you? Yeah. So I use the term member loosely because there's so many different ways that people participate in indie hackers. And Mm -hmm. like, I don't think any one of them is more or less important than the others. But members are easy to track because a member for us is somebody who actually goes to the website, creates an account, gives us their email address, creates a password, and can now make comments, upvote comments, etc., make their own posts, create their own product page, etc. So 60,000 members is a reference to the number of people who've done that very specific set of activities. But there are a lot of people who just read the interviews or listen mm-hmm. to the podcast. Like There are many thousands of people who listen to the podcast every week like clockwork and never even go to the website. Hmm. And I would consider them all to be indie hackers, but they're not members. But I still care about them. And I still work on the podcast because I really enjoy doing the podcast. And I think it's impactful for a lot of people. There yeah. are people who come to the website and read the interviews and never sign up for an account. Hmm. There are people who go to the meetups and never come to the website as well. So it's difficult to sort of wrangle everybody into like one category and say they're all members, they're all something. But in the last two and a half years, Indie Hackers has been visited by about two and a half million different people. And you know, some percentage of them have decided to sign up and create an account. And one of them is named Patrick Collison, who is the founder of Stripe, which is where you now work. So a little while ago, I guess within probably a year and a half or so, I read that you got an email from Patrick and basically he felt like your community was so valuable. He wanted to help keep it around. So you now work at Stripe. And I wanted to just ask you what's gotten easier being at Stripe for you as the person running Indie Hackers and perhaps why? Why did you decide to go join Stripe? And also, if you're willing to share, what's gotten harder for you as an organizer that's now sort of in-house at a big company that maybe does trade time for money and a few of the things that you started out kind of saying that what wasn't the lifestyle that you wanted? Yeah. So Patrick emailed me asking to I would be open to an acquisition. And I said, yes. And we talked about it. And eventually it went through. I think it really is was a kind of a, a win-win-win situation for everybody involved because number one, like Stripe gets to ensure this community is thriving and exists for many years to come. But also like it aligns very well with Stripe's mission as a company because Stripe wants to increase the GDP of the internet. Indie Hackers is a site that was created to help people like me who want to start more companies. And so if more people are starting companies, like that's both of our goals and one, mm. which is really mm-hmm. important, I think, for any sort of merger or partnership or acquisition, or even just like people working together. Like you have to have the same values and the same goals. Otherwise, there's going to be situations that are difficult to navigate because you just are aiming at a different target. For Indie Hackers users, it was really good because by the time Stripe bought Indie Hackers, I was spending probably half my week every week talking to sponsors and advertisers to keep the site afloat, yeah. which was on one hand, kind of fun. It was a cool challenge. I felt like one of the people in the community because I was very transparent about my revenue numbers as well and what I was doing. But on the other hand, it was like finding sponsors doesn't make your website better. You know, no one's like, oh, I just can't wait for that new sponsor to show up on the homepage. People wanted different features. They wanted more interviews. And so by joining Stripe, I was able to stop spending time on all that stuff and just focus 100% of my time on making indie hackers better. And it was a win for me too, because again, like I now have a guaranteed job. I actually get paid to do what I love Mm. and I don't have to worry about paying the bills every month. So Mm. it was definitely a win-win-win situation. What's harder? What's easier? Virtually everything is easier. There's an entire pillar of stress that business owners have to face, which is like, how am I going to pay the bills? 
and I just don't have to face that anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like that is such a relief. It's so, it's like a cheat code. Well, I'll prod you on some of the harder stuff because I was a part of an acquisition. So I worked at Instagram when we were like 13 people. And then a few months later, are sitting at basically like a 10 year old company. The amount of data that we had to measure our community or our community work was very different from what was expected at a much larger company. And just, we grew up so fast, basically. And I wonder, you're probably a very data-driven person, a logical thinker, an engineer at heart. So perhaps, you know, you are already running your community in some ways in a quite analytical way. But do you feel like there's anything hard there of, of being a part of a company that is large and has quite significant revenue goals, I'm sure, and pressures? Does that show up in your life at all? And are you willing to talk about that on the microphone? <laughs> there's one thing I was going to say that was hard and you kind of touched on it. I don't feel like there's any sort of bureaucracy at Stripe or any sort of, I don't know, like top down pressure that makes my job harder or more difficult or more annoying than it needs to be. They're very smart with how they handle the acquisition and like the subsequent sort of operations. They're very hands-off. As you guys can see, I'm in my apartment. Uh, I don't have anybody asking me what I'm working on every day or telling me what I need to do. I just sort of do the things that I think are best and people at Stripe trust that that's the best. And so that is pretty good. But I do think that because Stripe is such a large, successful company and because like for any hackers to really have an impact on what Stripe is doing, which I really want to be the case because I want it to be a good acquisition for both parties, there is a lot of pressure I put on myself to basically grow and make any hackers a more significant thing. And that's a type of pressure that I didn't feel when I was by myself. I think there's a way in which if you're a business owner, like maybe you can fail your customers, you can definitely fail yourself, but like you don't have a boss, you don't have investors, you don't have anyone yeah. else who's sort of a peer who's like, you're failing. It's only yourself. And that for me is very comfortable. Having like another organization or another person who's like very much tied to see me succeed and at like a level that's like extremely high, I think really lights the fire under my butt and gets me working like much harder than I would otherwise. And also it was like a stressor in a little ways because you don't want to let people down and you don't want to fail to hit goals or not achieve what you think you're capable of achieving. And so I think there's a way in which that's definitely been a harder thing. And so it's a trade-off. I still think that overall it's much better because like worrying about paying the bills is much more stressful. <laughs> time I got acquired, it's like five and a half, six thousand dollars a month in revenue, which is enough to pay my bills, but I had just gotten there. Mm. And every month before that had been lower. So it's definitely a worthy trade-off. I got a question sort of on behalf of a lot of the people starting like independent communities, which we talked to, like some of them get to a point where it spells beyond that like one meetup that they have in their city. And sort of like you, you mentioned that like when you launched, you could tell that people were sort of begging for this. It's like, you know, a bunch of water rushed in to fill the space. That's a quote from one of the sort of community organizers we interview in our book. But they reach this point where they like start to have that thought of like turning their community into a business or building a business business with their community on top of the community, though they started the community from a different place that they just wanted to be around other people. And now looking back at that original sort of like inspiration where you said, hey, this is the business I'm going to build, Indie Hackers. What's your opinion on like, in some ways, like the business model that you were operating off of before the Stripe acquisition? And now any words of advice to folks who are, you know, running a community that really has like steam, really has people, community members are interested in it, 
but they haven't figured out a business model yet and like want to maybe make this their full-time thing and turn it into a business? Yeah, this is a deep topic. I think there are almost no wrong answers except for answers that are internally inconsistent with other decisions that you make. So for example, if your goal is to have a community that's as big as possible, you want everybody to be able to join, you don't want to be exclusive at all, then it's probably going to be hard for you to charge membership fees. I'm not saying it's impossible, but like that's almost always going to be a barrier that prevents some people from joining or checking out what you're up to, which means if you go that route, you need to like, basically generate revenue from some third party, which has its own set of consequences that you need to be aware of. In my case, that's the route that I went. I wanted any hackers to be as big as possible. I didn't want anybody to have to pay for access to these interviews. I didn't want it to be like some sort of school, you know, that was like sort of like, hey, you know, did you pay tuition? You can get in. Otherwise, you're, you're left out in the dust. I wanted people in third world countries to be able to get benefit from Andy Hackers' content. So for me, I never even considered charging the audience, which meant I had to go to third parties. And luckily, people who come to Andy Hackers are entrepreneurs. They're engineers. They're very intelligent, very driven. They spend a lot of money. It's not hard to find sponsors who want to get in front of an audience like that. But even then, there's like ups and downs with taking that approach. Back then, my sponsors were of the more generic kind. I would read a podcast ad from somebody about their business. I would put their banner on the homepage or a link in my email newsletter. And I think this was kind of sort of useful because often they would sell services that entrepreneurs wanted. But quite frankly, it didn't align as well as I would like it to have aligned. Uh, I think alignment is very important. I talked about it with mm. acquisitions. I think it's important with their business model as well. You want to do something that basically makes money in a way that provides more value to your actual audience, not less. Yeah, I think seeing these sponsors didn't necessarily make people like the Indianapolis podcast more. If I could do it all over again, my sponsors would have been more aligned with what people actually wanted, which is they wanted to know the stories of how people started successful companies. So I probably would have blocked anybody from being a sponsor unless they were a sponsor in one way and one way only, which was, hey, come on and share the story behind your company and how you started it and what made it great so people can read about it, which I think also would have made things more better for the sponsors because then people would be engaging with their messages more hmm. and they actually would have probably clicked through more and bought whatever the sponsor was selling, et cetera. So I think there's a lot there. I've seen a lot of companies that have like similar models where, you know, they have basically two different audiences they're targeting, like their sponsors and like their actual audience. And when they've aligned those two things, they've had really outsized good results and everybody's felt good about it. And they weren't sort of in the place that I was where I was frustrated doing this thing that wasn't making my community better. But yeah, I can speak about these trade-offs forever. Like if you go the other route and charge your community, there are trade-offs there as well. And I think there's no one right way, but you just need to be internally consistent. You need to make sure you know that like whatever you're doing, it's going to have trade-offs and you have to respect those trade-offs. Cortland, one of the things that is like immediate to anyone who talks to you is you have a wonderful mind. You're like a combination of a deep thinker and like a thorough, wide, comprehensive scanner of a topic, of an issue, of a concept. And so I was wondering, what is something that is challenging for you right now? What is a question you're sitting with? Like, what is something that you feel like you have you're circling you haven't quite figured out with indie hackers and with the community i could be blushing i would be right now <laughs> there's a lot of stuff i haven't figured out i get lucky a lot i get unlucky a lot i've tried so many things with indie hackers that i thought would work only to be blindsided by all sorts of stuff that backfired so lest i fool anyone into thinking that i'm more competent than i am i make you I make, fooled me you fooled me <laughs> <laughs> um Right now, my main focus, as it has been since I joined Stripe, is how do I grow indie hackers while also keeping it equally as impactful? And, mm. and it's very difficult because there are a lot of communities around business 
there aren't a lot of very large, impactful communities around business. Like there aren't too many examples to really learn from, especially that are like online and doing kind of the same things that indie hackers is doing. And so I kind of have to chart my own course, which means a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, which can be frustratingly slow sometimes because mm. the errors, if you spend three months working on something and it doesn't have the effect that you wanted it to, then you just have to spend another couple months backtracking and try something else. Like that's a lot of time that's gone by. More specifically, some of the things I'm trying right now, we just added a new milestones feature to the website. I really love it when people in the community actually demonstrate the results of what they're working on. When they show off like, hey, here's a good thing that I did. And instead of having to sit in isolation and just sit with it or talk to my co-founder about it, I want to share it with the community. And those are the kinds of discussions that almost always get the most upvotes, most questions and comments. Somebody says, hey, I just hit $10,000 a month in revenue. Here's how I did it. Everybody has questions about how they did it. Everybody mm -hmm. says kudos and congratulations. And so... Mm -hmm. It's almost like a mini interview too. It's like an opportunity for someone to offer like, I've progressed. I don't need to talk about this at length, but signal if you need to talk to me, I have figured this out. That's cool. And so we just started that a couple of weeks ago and it'll be interesting to see if it'll grow, if it'll be sticky and people will continually post these milestones about their businesses. And also like what we could do if we had just a huge repository of many thousands and thousands of little posts about how people hit these different milestones. Hmm. hundred people have posted about how they got an article in the New York Times Then we can like publish a definitive guide to how indie hackers can get hmm. featured hmm. in the New York Times, et cetera. And like a million other problems that people commonly run into. So I'm really excited about that but the jury's out as to whether or not it'll work. Right? Mm. There's a lot of different little steps it has to hit, a lot of hypotheses I have to prove to make sure that's going to work and have kind of growing power that it needs to. And what's difficult is that there's so many things I can do that people love and they thoroughly enjoy it, but the bar is higher than that for me right now or it's, it's no longer me trying to email 100 people and get them using it. It's like, how do I go from 100,000 people to 200,000 people? Mm. And if only 3,000 people like something, is that really enough signal? It feels like it because 3,000 people is a ton of people, but in terms of like the percentage chance, like result, mm differences that I need. It's not as much. So that's one challenge, all sorts of challenges like that I can go into. Uh, another one is more personal, which is just this year, I've been trying to find more work-life balance or work-life integration, as they say. Mm -hmm. And that's been interesting because I'm work-life work integration. Yeah. That's a new, I've that's a new that. version of that phrase. I'll, I want to come up with my own phrase. Yeah. I like work-life integration. I was kind of a hater for a while. I was like, it's just a different way to say the same thing. But now as I've been thinking about it, I think it's actually a fundamentally different thing. And uh, I think really embracing it has a pretty good impact on both my work and my personal life. Yeah. yeah. Is it because you're going to do maybe find it a community perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think that isn't around building a balance. <laughs> work-life balance sort of implies that like, your work and your life are two completely separate things and you need to literally balance them and that like you can't really enjoy your work and your life is not productive and they're yep. two different things. Whereas with me, like I'm running a community that like I created myself before it was a job. I did it because I loved it and it solved my own problem and I like it. I'm really talking to people who are my people every day who have the same interests that I do. Like I can talk to almost anybody who's an indie hacker for hours about nothing. And I often do. I get to fly around the world and go to all these different meetups. I think we had 55 meetups last month all over the world. Wow. Like wow. You were at all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what work life integration looks like. Yeah, it's, it's teleporting around the world. So it's like, I don't know, free trips to cool places where I meet people doing the things that I enjoy doing. I get to code all the time. I love programming on my own website. It's significant. It has an impact on people's lives and it's, mm. it has an impact on my life. Like I actually love my job. 
And so does it make any sense for me to like try to force myself to find some sort of weird random hobby to shoehorn into my life so I have some external life thing? Like, why don't I actually just like enjoy the conversations that I haven't worked? Like, why don't I do a lot of things that are sort of work related, but I'm not even doing them because they're the most efficient thing to do for work. I'm doing them because I genuinely enjoy them. And I'm lucky enough to have a job that like lets me do these things that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's what work-life integration is about. Like, What parts of my work are actually just a good way to live life in general? Maybe the answer is, you know, the indie hackers like rock climbing meetup or other alternative <laughs> activities where the one rule is you can't talk about, you know. Do like, that well, don't scale. <laughs> so like outdoor indie hacker meetups. I've been on indie hacker hikes. Oh, nice. I love that. I didn't do the Indie Hacker Camping. So final question for you, Corland. One of the fun things about working with people is that sometimes some of them absolutely blow your mind or become significant parts of your life, or you hear amazing stories about the way you've affected someone or someone's business. Does anyone jump to mind when you think about the last three years of Indie Hackers that it just really means a lot to you personally, the, how Indie Hackers as a community has affected them or their businesses? Um, this is a little bit cheating because she's a good friend of mine. We've been good friends for 12 years, but her name is Lynn Tai. She has what's pretty quickly approaching like the most popular episode of my podcast that I've recorded. And what's cool about it is she was there with me with like from day one when I started Indie Hackers. I was like texting her ideas for the name, like her and my brother and my mom. She was there when I was negotiating the Stripe acquisition. And her husband is also like, we would work out of her husband's office and the three of us would work together. And he's also working on his own business. And at some point, she just got so excited about like everybody working on these businesses around her. And she never wanted to do a startup before because she didn't want to raise money and have a ton of employees and have to pitch investors. But she's like, oh, this is a cool new way to do it. And I think I could do it. And I'm passionate about something. So she started a company. And this was 2017 in March that she started. And then two years later, she was at a point where she came onto the Indie Hackers podcast. And her company of one person uh, was making something like $400,000 a year. And she was doing what she loved, working her own hours. She works like 20 hours a week because she likes to travel and hang Wow. And I feel like being an indie hacker really changed her life for the better. And it was really cool to say that I was a part of that. I think, you know, sometimes you see numbers. We asked our community, how many of you would not have started a company if not for indie hackers and something like 14% of community members are like, I would definitely not have done this at all if I didn't. Dang, that's an amazing stat. It is. And if you multiply it times the number of community members, like that's many thousands of projects and businesses that just would not exist. And like that number is cool intellectually, but emotionally, I don't really feel it. It's a number. It's like zeros. But to actually have like a person Mm -hmm. close to me and see like how her life has changed because she started something and it worked out uh, has definitely been impactful to me. I love that. It's a great story. Brad Cortland, thank you so much for your time. As always, really enjoyed talking to you and hope we get to see you in person soon. Hope so too. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure as always. If you want to get involved with Indie Hackers, whether it's sharing your own story, joining a meetup in your area, or tuning into their dope podcast, it is really good, just go to Cortland's beautiful website, IndieHackers.com. No space, IndieHackers.com. They also have a rad Instagram account where they spotlight members of the community, Indie Hackers who are out there making good work in the world. You can check that out at Indie underscore Hackers, at Indie underscore hackers, or follow the brilliant Corlin Allen on Twitter at CS Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Bailey, have you ever thought about starting, I mean, we run a company, but have you thought about if you had to start a small business that sold a thing that was sort of scalable, what that might be? Oh, I'm an American, so I think we all dream about our capitalist. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> or capitalist like well, you know what would it be what would it be future. if you made, if you made, if, um, it, if this was shark tank right now get together shark tank yeah i'm, I'm your host yeah Kevin. well it's gonna be one of those like this x that yeah, because that makes very good business yeah, so uh-huh. Espresso Bar X Podcast Recording Studio. Yes. So you can come in, bustle up against other people, take your shot of a podcast. Yeah. And just down the hall, there's someone in a bubble, some cool person in New York City that's recording a podcast. And as you're taking your espresso, it's played over the speakers. Yes. So like people can come in and kind of like performatively record their podcast for folks that are just cruising in and out drinking their espresso. So that's my really weird idea. A number of reasons for both of those sides of the X. Yeah. But does it make sense to you or do you think it's insane? That's wonderful. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the X. (laughs) What about you? What about me? Oh, you know, probably something casual, like a new breed of scratch and sniff sticker that smells like delicious food items from your home growing up. Like you can send sort of a dish for me. Oh, Oh, you know, mom would make pho like oh, growing pho up. And so you. I would tell them what food I really loved growing up and I'll get this custom oh. sticker. And then the sticker, it never stops smelling. You can just re-scratch it over and over again. You go deep into some research on scratch and sniff yeah. technology. You know. Sounds great. You know. All right. I I'm like an those. innovator. Anyways, if you want to find out more about us, <laughs> go to our website, uh, peopleand.company. Not a dot .com, but a dot .company. Dot .company. Uh, we are writing a book. We mentioned that earlier. It's a concise synthesis of what we've learned from conversations like this from Cortland about everyday people starting extraordinary communities. Um, you can sign up to get notified about that on our website. It's going to come out on August 20th. Pre-order is going to start earlier than that. Go to peopleand.company, sign up for that, pre-order that, or you know, just write a review for that on Amazon. <laughs> and yeah, I'll be forever grateful. If you want to just say hi to us, you can send me an email anytime. Hi at peopleand.company. Oh, and one more thing. Oh, only one more thing? Well, I think so. Yeah, probably. If you like this podcast, we'd love it if you would review us. Just like, you know, tap the star ratings or click subscribe because it helps more people find it and search. Yes, Yes. review is cool. Cool? Review review is cool. 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 All right, see ya. See ya.